0: We're having two short readings. The first one will be from 1 Timothy 3 and the second one from Titus chapter 1. 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Titus chapter 1. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it.
1: If you were with us last Sunday, I'm seeing a few faces. I don't know if you were with us last Sunday or not. We looked at the subject of deacons. If you missed that, have a listen back online because I hope one of the things that will have come away from last week is a bit of a fresh understanding, a renewed encouragement to see how important the role of deacons is in the life of the local church. If you were here, you may also remember and reflect on two other things. One is I probably bit off more than I could chew in one sermon. And the other is I said we'd cover elders this week. Both of those are reminders of a character flaw I have, of being naively optimistic. (laughs) Uh, But I want to learn from perhaps squeezing a bit too much in last week. And I can tell you now that we are going to cover elders in at least two weeks. Maybe it will just be two. Maybe I'll get to next week and say, Matthew, you need to do another one to finish everything off that I haven't been able to cover. But but when it comes to eldership, not because the office is more important, simply because of the amount of material that the Bible gives us, it's going to take us a bit longer to work through. We've got two lists of qualifications in 1st Timothy and Titus. If you flick on this afternoon and look in 1st Timothy 4, Paul having told Timothy what the qualifications are for elders, then says, "This is what it looks like to be a good elder." Then you can get into 1 Peter 5 and see what it means for elders to shepherd well. And there are lots of other passages all the way through the New Testament that give us so much clarity on what elders should do. So what I want to do over the next couple of weeks, and maybe it will be longer, I'm not promising anything now, is to ask at least two questions. Number one, what do godly elders look like? What are we, as a church family, looking for in the men that, Lord willing, will join the eldership and lead our church? And tied to that is another equally important question. What do godly elders do? It's a great question. I've lost track of the number of times that I've been told as a preacher, you're invisible for six days of the week and incomprehensible for an hour on Sundays. And I get that. Um, well, if that's true of preachers, what's true of elders? Well, what is it that we do? Do you just sometimes lead a service on a Sunday and, and maybe preach occasionally if that's your gifting and come to an eldership meeting and talk about policies and praise? Is that it? What do godly elders do? There are the two questions I want us to be thinking about. What do godly elders look like and what do godly elders do? And those two questions are equally important and relevant to all of us, but in different ways, and different to three different categories of people. First of all, those questions matter for your current elders. The qualifications that Sylv read for us are not something that you work through once and then forget. Don't don't think of those qualifications like an 11-plus exam. Work hard, get in, then you can move on and forget it. Those qualifications are a daily spiritual health check for every elder in this church and in every church. So as we work through what it means to be an elder, please would you pray for your current elders, myself included. Please would you pray as we sit under God's word over the next few weeks and are reminded of that that serious and solemn privilege that is ours to serve of what we need to be doing, how we need to be killing sin, how we need to be humbling ourselves under God's word, how we need to be leading out of that sacrificial leadership. Would you pray for us? Second group of people. Would you pray for the men who are prayerfully considering serving as elders? Those lists that we have just read will, for them, seem overwhelming and, in one sense, just enormous. And in in many ways, that's a good and a right response. You want men to see the, the significance of the office and the weight of the responsibility, and that is a right and a good thing. But we don't want them to be crushed. We don't want them to sit under the next few weeks and think, There is no way in the world I could possibly serve in that role. We want those that the Lord is raising up to be leaders in our church to see all of those qualifications through the lens of the gospel. No one person is perfect by the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look through this list together, the qualifications will disqualify some but they can't disqualify everyone or else we wouldn't have any elders at all. So would you pray for the men who are prayerfully considering this list over the course of the next few weeks? And thirdly, we all as a church family need to be praying that we would truly understand what godly elders look like and what godly elders do because it will be our privilege and responsibility in time to affirm God's call on those that he will set apart. Many churches across our land, and especially here at Emmanuel, it's our practice, once we've gone through this process of thinking about who could serve because of what the Bible teaches, and then thinking about specific people as an eldership, then they're brought to the church family. There comes a point when we, as a membership, we will affirm those men in the light of these qualifications. And so it matters for all of us to be clear on who can serve in these offices. So as we go through the next couple of weeks, please would you pray for yourself and for all of us as a church family, that God would give us, that God would give us clarity over the men he's calling, that he would give us humility To joyfully embrace the blessing and the gift of others who can serve in this way, and then to to work alongside them and to serve under them in such a way that their ministry is a blessing to us as well as an encouragement to them. There's loads of ways that we need to be prayerfully working through this series. So it's not just more teaching that fills our heads. We, We want this to shape our hearts so that it helps us prayerfully make wise decisions as a church family moving forwards. So, firstly, then, what do godly elders look like? First thing Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy three and chapter uh, verse one is: "Here is a trustworthy saying: Whoever aspires to be an overseer, and uh, if you're getting into the Bible fairly new, you'll see that throughout the New Testament there are three different words that gets that get used to describe this one office. So we looked at deacons last week. That's one of two offices. The other office is Overseer, sometimes called um, elder, sometimes called pastor or minister. They're all describing the same office. So whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That means, number one, godly elders aspire to be elders. Sounds like a redundantly obvious thing to say, doesn't it? But there's more here than perhaps first meets the eye. To begin with, Paul is reminding us that it is right and good and godly to have spiritual ambition. And culturally, I think we need to be reminded of that because we're Brits and because we're in an evangelical church culture. Our default, if we're honest, is usually to say, if someone wants to serve... They probably have too high an opinion of themselves. Much better just to sit there and wait until you're asked rather than say you want to do something. That's not what Paul teaches. The Holy Spirit is helping us see here that eldership is a noble task, that wanting to care for and nurture God's people is a good thing. And wanting to do that is a good thing to want to do. Aspiring isn't sinful. It's essential. And in part, it's essential because having a deep-seated conviction about the importance of that work is what what will sustain you when it's hard. Now, we, in our contemporary Western culture, we can lose sight of something of that because there is so much going on in the professing evangelical church world that reminds us of how horribly some pastors, elders, have abused their office, taken advantage of their congregation. They've fleeced the church financially. They've done all sorts of things that have left the church, humanly speaking, on its knees. And because that's going on in the world, that experience can shape the way that we hear somebody say, I want to serve as an elder. And you can be left, if you don't think carefully about how the world is shaping you, you can be left thinking, so that means you're a self-serving power grabber, does it? That's not what Paul is saying here. That shouldn't be the case for anybody who sees what God's word truly teaches, but it's absolutely not the case in Paul's day. See, when Paul was writing this to Timothy, if you were to willingly serve as a leader in the church of God, you were signing up for persecution. To be willing to stand up and serve as a leader of a church was you being willing to stand on the front line and take the bullets, spiritually speaking, and sometimes spiritually uh, physically speaking, that would come flying. You wouldn't You wouldn't pursue church leadership in Paul's day if you wanted to play the power game. This isn't an office of prestige that would enable you to manipulate people and accrue wealth and all that kind of horrible stuff that goes on in these churches that we're hearing about. The spiritual leaders who step up are saying, I love the Lord so much and I love his people so much that I want to sacrificially serve them. And if I do that in a way that results in harm, persecution or even death, That's what I want to do. Aspiration isn't sinful. It's essential. But it's also not sufficient. Just because you have a sincere desire to be an elder doesn't mean that God is calling you to be one. And we know that because Paul doesn't stop at verse 1. In 1 Timothy, you've got verses 2 to 7. In Titus, you've got verses 6 to 9. That are these long lists of qualifications that you need to meet if you are then to serve as an elder. It's not only that you would long to serve in that way, that you have an aspiration, desire to serve in that way, that you're even willing to see all the costs that might come and I'll willingly do that if that's what the Lord calls me to do. That's not sufficient. You need to be able to meet these qualifications. And that's one of the ways that practically speaking, we as a whole church family become a part of this process. We don't just have anybody who's interested, stick their hand up and the following week, they're now an elder of the church. As a church family, as the members of this church body, we prayerfully consider whether those men meet those qualifications and then affirm God's calling. I use that language deliberately because I want to press home a distinction that I think really helps men who are thinking about eldership. When I was younger, the language that tended to get used was "there's an internal and an external call." Hands up if you've ever heard that kind of language. Nobody have that kind of language. A few people. Internal, external call, and in a sense, that's kind of what Paul's describing here. That for those men who are longing, who are drawn towards service, there's an internal sense, and that is then confirmed by a church family. There's an external affirmation, if you like, of that calling. And to a degree, that's helpful language. But actually, I think it's more unhelpful than it is helpful. And the reason is this. I think the language of calling raises the stakes too early. So, I want you to imagine um, that Albert comes to speak to me after church. I'm not aware that there's an Albert in our church family, so I can't be speaking about you personally. Um, But imagine Albert comes and speaks to me at the end of the service. says, James, I feel called to be an elder. That doesn't leave us a lot of wriggle room, does it? I mean, I've got one of two options now. I've either got to say, Albert, I'm sorry, brother, but don't think you're hearing God's calling on your life correctly. In fact, perhaps you're not even hearing God's call at all. Or I've just got to affirm that, well, if you think that God's called you, then we have to recognize that you're going to be an elder in this church. It makes it very difficult to have any kind of conversation and to think about these other qualifications. And all of it ends up with quite a high stakes position that we don't need to be in. Paul gives us a more helpful vocabulary in verse one. He helps us think about this more clearly. He doesn't say whoever feels called to be an overseer. He says, whoever aspires to be an overseer. And now we can have a conversation because it is a good thing that the Lord may be putting upon your heart that desire, that longing to serve. And now we can think, well, let's look at the other qualifications for being an elder. Let's see if now is the time that the Lord may be calling you to serve in this role, or if there may be parts of your life where together we can help you grow in the fruits of the Spirit so that in time you may be able to serve in the future. Now, if you want to think about that a bit more, can I commend this book to you? It's called The Path to Being a Pastor, and the subtitle is A Guide for the Aspiring. So Bobby engages very specifically with that question of aspiration and calling, but he also talks really practically about what you should do if you're not yet an elder, but you would love to serve as an elder, whether that's full-time ministry or not. It's really practical for thinking, what do you do now? How do you live and pursue opportunities and pray? And what kinds of things could you be doing to equip yourself to be a blessing to the church family in whatever office the Lord may call you to in the future? So godly elders aspire to be elders. Secondly, godly elders have Christ like character. Now, depending on how you pair a few of these descriptions up, I think there are 16 different qualifications, and, and this table will show you some of the overlap between the passages in Timothy and the passages in Titus. But what's really interesting is there are some qualifications that appear in one book that don't appear in the other. So Uh, for instance, um, you might look at um, the description in Timothy uh, to not be a recent convert. And then you'd be left thinking, well, that doesn't apply in Titus. So does that mean in Titus's circumstance, his Cretan church family didn't need to think about that particular rule? Or you look in Timothy and the requirement of, um, where do we have it? In Timothy 3, verse 7, that they must have a good reputation with outsiders. Does that mean that in Titus, in Crete, you could be awful employers? That's not what's being described. Paul didn't intend there to be an easier list and a harder list. The differences in those lists remind us that the lists themselves are not exhaustive, they're descriptions, they're indicative. Every single item on those lists is important. But the reason that there are differences is not because you could do one thing in one place and something else in another. It's because they are all describing the foundational principle that's essential for anybody who's going to serve as a leader in God's church, that you look like Jesus. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, but with a grace-given consistency that means as a church family look on, They can follow your example as you follow Christ. Now, many of you have heard um, Don Carson's famous line about qualifications for eldership. When he said, the most extraordinary thing is that they're not all that extraordinary. And he's absolutely right. You, you look at these qualifications and think about what the rest of the New Testament calls for every Christian to do. Just, just think about the fruits of the Spirit. So Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I think I might have got them in the wrong order, but that's the nine. Now you think of those lists in Timothy and Titus. The overlap is massive. And that overlaps there for a very specific reason. Elders aren't a completely separate species of Christian. They are exemplary Christians. The Christians you should be able to look at, not because they've got everything right, and not because they're not struggling with sin or have areas in their life where they need your prayerful support to become more like Jesus, but because as you look over All of their life, you are seeing a loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled life in union with Christ that we can emulate. Which means, given all of that crossover, rather than work through all 16 qualifications over the course of the next few weeks, I want to focus on two in particular. I want to focus on two that I think, cause most people the most number of questions. You read through this list and you think, uh, what does that mean when it comes to thinking about people who could serve? Firstly, what does it mean for a man to be above reproach in Timothy or blameless in Titus? And secondly, what are we looking for in a man's family? Does every elder need to be married have multiple children, and for all of those children to be professing Christians? I think they're two of the key questions. If you've got questions about any of the other 14 qualifications afterwards, please come and speak to me. But I think they're the two that perhaps have us scratching our heads and praying the most. And so I want to dig into those this morning. And then next week we'll be thinking, what do godly elders do? So firstly, what does Paul mean in verse 2 when he says, now the overseer is to be above... Reproach. If you've got your finger in Titus one as well, um, in our English translation in verses six and seven, the word we've got translated is blameless, appears in both verses. The Greek used across those two texts is, is, is different words, but it's getting at the same idea. What does it mean for elders to be above reproach or blameless? It's not that they be perfect. Paul has told us he wrote both letters, also wrote Romans. And reminded us that there is no one righteous, not even one, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes you righteous by your faith in him. It's not perfection. Of all the things that I read this week, I think the most helpful was from a guy called Gordon Fee, when he said that it has to do with irreproachable, observable conduct. Irreproachable, observable conduct conduct by which he doesn't mean that there can be a secret life of sin that you're not aware of that's not what he means he means in every way that you interact with this person are you seeing them live out the fruit of the spirit are you seeing them live out the gospel not because you're expecting them to be perfect in every circumstance but when they face a trial that has them on their knees when they're spoken to in a way that's really unkind. When they're left in a situation where their job is unstable or they lose their job and they're worried about how to provide for their family, in all of those mosaic circumstances of life, are you seeing them live out the fruit of the Spirit dependent upon the grace of the gospel? That's what it means to be above reproach. And and to an extent, I I think this is the whole ballgame. This is it. I think you could say that all of the other 15 qualifications come out of this one. So in the way that they love their wife, are they above reproach? In the way that they parent their children, if the Lord has blessed them with children, are they above reproach? in the way that they have a reputation with other people who aren't Christians but look on at this person and think oh you've got some responsibility in the church i wonder what it'd be like to come to your church crumbs i wouldn't want to come to your church if you're one of the leaders they need to be above reproach parenting hospitality self discipline all of those kinds of areas what paul is describing here is that the men that we are looking for don't become elders in the church Because they're successful leaders in business and we want some good leadership principles. Or because they're related to an important family in the church and everybody in their family eventually becomes elders. Or because they're just nice guys and everybody loves spending time with them. What matters is is there a grace-given consistency in the way they look like Jesus. That's what we're looking for second qualification that needs some careful unpacking is what do we need to look for in a man's family and this is hard and because it's hard we need to dig into it so 1st Timothy 3 look at verses 4 and 5 he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now flick over to Titus 1. Look at verse 6. Because on a first read, Paul seems to raise the bar even further here. Verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. I'm not skipping over them because they're not important. I want you to see the parallel between the passages. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient do those two passages mean that to be an elder, you have to be married, you have to have not one but probably multiple children, and all of your children have to be professing Christians? That is what some really faithful Bible-believing Christians from whom I have learned and continue to learn much believe. So Doug Wilson and John MacArthur, to name two godly men whose references we will Whose resources we will often be encouraging you to read. I'm not calling them out because I think they're unhelpful. I'm reminding you of the faithful men and women who would say that that's what these passages teach. So Doug Wilson says, if a man's children fall away from the faith, either doctrinally or morally, man's children, he is at that point disqualified from formal ministry in the church. Is that right? I don't think so, but let me show you why. What are we looking for in a man's family? Go back to First Timothy three. An elder must manage his own family well. That verb, manage, from um, the verb proistemi, is a verb for leading and having oversight over. And interestingly, Paul uses exactly the same word of what elders do in the church. If you go down to chapter 5 of First Timothy, look at verse 17. In our translation, at least in the NIV that I've got, um, it says, the elders who direct the affairs of, that's the same Greek word, proistomy, whoever direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor. Meaning that in both the home and the church, the role of a father and an elder, is characterized by both gentleness and authority. That's why Paul keeps consistently applying the language of family to the church. So you look in chapters 3 and verse 15, and Paul describes the church as the household of God. You get to the beginning of chapter 5, and he refers to all the fellow Christians that make up a church family as fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. That's why there's this leadership parallel between what goes on in the church and what goes on in the home. Just as men are to be the leaders in the home, so too some are to lead the church. Which is why the way a prospective elder leads his family is such an important indicator. It's what Paul tells us at the end of uh, verse five. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? If the Lord has blessed you with a spouse, in this case a wife, and also if he blesses you with children, that is the training ground for future service in the church family. Which helps us see that godly leadership is nothing like what we may read about in those awful abusive pastoral circumstances. It's not authoritarian, it's not top-down, it's not dictatorial, it's the loving leadership that you exhibit at home. It's a way that we would well, and Paul picks up on it in verse four, he says that you're to do it in such a way that it's it's a manner worthy of full. Respect. We, we're to love dads. We are to love our kids in a way that reflects the Heavenly Father's love for us, His spiritual sons and daughters. There's one um, writer who describes the goal here really helpfully. He says that we're to be wise and nurturing in our guidance in such a way that it's going to evoke devotion, affection and loyalty in return. A good number of us were at the, the men's breakfast yesterday. We were thinking about fatherhood. This is exactly what we were talking about. In some ways, especially when your kids are young, any of us can achieve compliance by shouting and issuing orders. And there comes a point in life when you're about to hit a you know, child about to cross the road moment where you need to raise your voice. I right? get all of that. But there is a, deeper heart goal that every mom and dad knows in parenting, which is to draw your kids to see the goodness of what you're telling them and your love for them in the way that you are calling them to do or not do other things in in the wisdom with which you're telling them things so that in time, they can then make wise decisions themselves. The goal of godly parenting isn't to just have kids who perform when the church is looking. It's to have children whose hearts are seeing in the home what it looks like to be a man or a woman who loves Jesus with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and think, I want to be like mom and dad. I want to think about the world they do i want to love the church family the way they do i want to have concern for the people who aren't in the church family the way they do it's about drawing your children to see the goodness of following in your example as you follow after christ and that is exactly why all of those principles of leading in the home are then carried across into the way you lovingly lead in the church so just think about what those dynamics would look like in the home, what do you do as, as a parent, as a mum or a dad, but thinking about men potentially becoming elders, what do you do, dads? You forgive and you care. You pray and you prioritize God's word. And how about all the relational stuff? You are self-sacrificial with your time. Bango, most of your hobbies. For a season. And don't resent it because your kids will not be with you for long. You accommodate in ways that enable yourself to be a blessing to your family, even if you're just dying to self all the time. You don't sit where you might like to in your favorite seat. You don't watch the things that you might want to watch. There's a whole load of stuff that you don't do. You could look at all of that and say, being a dad is miserable. Only if you're really selfish. Being a dad is one of the greatest privileges in all the world. But We live it out by giving, by being a good example, by showing our kids that what matters more is not that I get my way, but that together as a family, we are loving each other and enjoying being in God's world. And now bring all of those lessons into the church. I want to be in the church but my elders love like that, I am very thankful to say that I continue to learn from my fellow elders who do love their homes and me as a brother in Christ, and you as our church family like that, but does Paul require something more of Titus Titus uh, verse Titus one and verse 6. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Until you look at your footnote. Always look at your footnotes, because these are where our Bible translators say, We're looking at all of the manuscripts that we got in the Greek, not because we're doing Chinese whispers and we're listening to stuff that's got lost in translation. We're looking at the thousands of translations in the Greek. Sorry, the thousands of manuscripts in the Greek. And actually, it's hard to know what's the right translation. So if you've got a footnote, it will probably say either whose children are trustworthy, or it will say whose children are faithful. In verse 6, Paul writes... Your children are to be pistos. P-I-S-T-O-S is the transliteration. And it can mean either faithful or believing. How do you know which? Context. So here, Paul either means that an elder's children have to be believing or that they have to be faithful and obedient. So how do we know? Let's bring scripture together and interpret scripture with scripture. We've got two letters here written by the same author, the Apostle Paul, who is writing to two pastors of new churches, Timothy and Titus, and he's writing about the same subjects to both. What kind of men are you looking for to run the church, to lead the church, I should say? It's fair to assume he's going to be saying the same thing to both. He's not going to be writing stricter requirements to Titus than he is to Timothy. So if you pull those two passages together, and if you remember second half of verse six, which I think helps us to understand what's going on at the first half of verse six, that the children are not to be open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. What's required is that your children be obedient and in that sense, faithful to your commands rather than that they be believers. And actually, That makes the most sense of all of the lists and the qualifications. Because what are these qualifications? They are things you are to look for in ways that show that prospective elders have the personal discipline and responsibility to serve you faithfully in the church. Every single mum and dad in this room prays with every fiber of their being for their kids to come to saving faith. And that prayer never stops. However old your kids may be, until they're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to still keep praying those prayers. But you can't do anything about it, humanly speaking. None of us can make our children become Christians. That is a miracle of God. But what we are responsible for as mums and dads, but in this context, as dads thinking about eldership, is the way that we are faithfully present in the home so that we are managing, leading, caring for our family in a way that shapes the lives of our children. I think that's the most helpful way to understand what pistis means in verse 6 both through the lens of 1 Timothy 3 and through the context of what's going on. And the conclusion is, look just at verse 6. The contrast that Paul is making is not between believing and unbelieving children. It's between obedient, respectful children and lawless, uncontrolled children. Come back to the first question. What do we expect of a man's family? The behavior of of our children, in that sense, does still matter. Not because they become the test, but because they are the lived out working of how a dad is present and actively involved in family life and supporting mum if she's the one who's mostly at home and being a part of managing, leading, caring for the family well such that they could do so in a manner worthy of full respect but that is no guarantee that any of our children will become christians we long for that to be the case for all of them we can't make that happen so godly elders what do they look like they aspire to serve and they have Christ-like character that shows us Jesus as we see the fruit of the Spirit being lived out in their lives. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to think about what godly elders do. We're going to think about the requirement that they be able to teach. And we get that in First Timothy. When you get to Titus, it's specifically so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And we're going to dig into First Timothy 4 as well. And we're going to look at what it actually looks like to elder elders. Well. But before we sing to close, I want to do what I asked us all to do at the beginning and pause for a minute and pray in the quiet of your hearts for those three different groups of people. Pray for our elders, for Andy, Andy, Tim, Rich, Ollie, Matthew, and myself. Pray for the other men that the Lord will raise. And pray for all of us as a church as we seek to discern who they might be and then be an encouragement to them in their ministry. Let's pray quietly for a moment. Who is sufficient for these things? If we were left to ourselves, Father, the answer would be none of us. And so we bless you that you have not left us to ourselves. That your spirit is at work in the hearts of men and women, making all of us more and more mature and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, please, would you carry out that work in the whole of our church family? But this morning we're thinking specifically about those men who you call to lead our church well. Please, for all of us who are seeking to do that now, would you give us a renewed sense of the awe and privilege that is ours, of our complete dependence upon you and your spirit. Would you open our eyes to see the importance to fight with all the strength that you give us against the devil such that we may be able to serve you well, and be a blessing to your people. Father, for those who are prayerfully considering whether this may be a ministry you're calling them to, or they're, they're thinking about how they are aspiring to this office, Father, please, would you help them to work through these qualifications and prayerfully examine their hearts? Father, we pray that you would raise up many to serve and bless our church. We pray that even as we go through this process, if some men are not yet to serve in those offices or for a season, Father, would this process make them more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Such that there are homes that are transformed by a renewed passion to love the Lord Jesus in their marriages and with their children and in the way that they honor their parents and in all the relationships that you've given. Father, please, would this series and with this time and this process of thinking about elders and deacons, not just be about those men who would then be appointed, but would your spirit work through your word to build us all up such that as the people of Lemington and Warwick go about their business go to their schools, go to their unis. There'd be missionaries from our church, just ordinary people going about their courses and their work who look different because of Jesus, who love them and treat them differently because of Jesus, who speak to them about things that aren't just stuck in time and space. They remind them that we are creatures made for an eternal future, And we long for them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. Father, please, would you be at work in our church family to make us all more and more like your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.